welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. <laughs> uh, well, my name is Jenna. If we haven't met, I'm the associate pastor here at Awaken. Uh, so glad to be up here this morning. Uh, we are still in Lent. Does anyone else feel like this season is just dragging? <laughs> I am doing the whole 30 and telling everyone about it, and I think that probably has a little something to do with it, because all I want is cheese <laughs> and, and maybe a glass of wine. I, my brother, who's right there, shout out, uh, on Friday came over, and he looked at me, and I, I was like really itching just for like, I'm making dinner, I'd love to have a glass of wine, and he's like, Jenna, no one will know. <laughs> Just do it. Who are you even accountable to? And I said, get behind me, Satan. Uh, so I, I think that's probably why Lent feels a little long for me. Um, but while we've been in this season, uh, we have been going through this series called Into the Wilderness, where we are looking at the lives of people in the scriptures who have had a stint in the wilderness in their lives. So we've looked at Jesus and David and Jacob and Moses, uh, and today we get to look at the life of Elijah. So we will be in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, and if you are able, please stand for the reading of the word. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness." He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Pray with me. 
God, for eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. For those of us who are living in the wilderness, God, that you would tend to our hearts in the way that only you can do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, So to start this morning, I wanted to begin with uh, maybe setting us up contextually here. Uh, So first and second kings uh, is telling the story of Israel's monarchy. And so a quick note here, uh, just to mention about the identity and sort of the essence of Israel, that if we remember, when Israel was first called to be a people, they were called to be set apart and distinct because it was understood that, that the people in that day reflected the identity and nature of their God. And so Israel was called to be the set-apart people group in order to bless those around them. So when they transitioned to a monarchy, it's important to note that, that this essential part of their identity is meant to be preserved. And how that manifests is that the Israelites follow Torah, and they understand Yahweh to be authoritative. Uh, and the one that e- even though there is a king, the king answers to Yahweh. And so where we are in the story this morning, uh, King Ahab is the king of the northern kingdom. So at this point in history, uh, Israel has split. There's the northern kingdom, which is Israel, southern kingdom, which is uh, Judah. And we are looking at Ahab right now. Uh, who has recently made a political merger of sorts and, and married Jezebel. Uh, so she's Sidonian and from just north, uh, which is a very common practice uh, for kings in this day, to marry a foreign king's daughter. Uh, and it's a peace treaty, really, um, to say uh, we have this mutual, mutually beneficial relationship um, And in doing that, what happened is that the Canaanite gods, Baal and Asherah, uh, have been integrated into the life and practice of Israel. And so the book of 1 and 2 Kings is really wrestling with this tension of what does it mean to be a kingdom? And what will this particular kingship look like? Because, uh, and and I guess really asking the question, uh, will you trust Yahweh, will you rest in Yahweh's security or will you act in uh, the military and political strategies of the day? Will you create your own security? And so this is what we're wrestling with. Uh, Enter the role of the prophet. The prophet is intended uh, to be in relationship and communion with the king, uh, continually reminding the people of God of what faithfulness looks like which in part is why Elijah's life is at stake. So the chapter before, there is a showdown of sorts that happens on Mount Carmel, where all of the prophets of Baal are gathered, and Elijah is the the representation for Yahweh, and they're, they're sort of pitted against each other, and they both set up offerings, and the agreement is that the one true God will manifest in fire and consume the offering. Guys, I don't make this up. This is... This is the Bible. Uh, and so the fire comes, and, and whichever God manifests that way is the one true God. Uh, and it's interesting because people in that day understood uh, Baal to manifest in fire and thunder and rain. Uh, and it, as the story goes, it's actually Yahweh that manifests in that way. 
And Elijah requests to have all the prophets killed, which, bad day for them. Uh, and it's maybe a sermon uh, for our Lost in Translation series. <laughs> maybe that. Um, so Elijah uh, requests this, and Ahab and Jezebel get wind that all of the people that they surround themselves with are no longer there, and they are pissed. So Elijah, Jezebel sends this messenger to threaten Elijah's life. He flees, uh, goes with his servant, arrives at Beersheba, which is one of the southernmost parts of the kingdom of Judah, leaves his servant there, walks for a day into the wilderness, arrives at a bush, and lays down and makes a request to die. And in my humble opinion... You cannot study Elijah's experience in the wilderness without acknowledging the Israelites in the wilderness. So if we remember, Moses is at a bush, and and God appears at Mount Horeb, and he goes to Pharaoh, and the the Israelites are in slavery, and, and he says, let my people go, and they cross over the Red Sea, and they begin their journey in the wilderness. And what's so fascinating about it is about three days into the journey, they realize, shoot, you know what we didn't think about? Food and water. (laughs) What are we going to do? So they arrive in Exodus 15 at the waters of Marah, or waters of bitterness. Uh, The water is made sweet again, and they find their water source. And in Exodus 16, God begins to provide manna and quail every day, just enough of what they need, and Sabbath, which is so fascinating to think about the trauma of slavery, and for that to be the identity of these people, and now they're in the wilderness, and they are given food and water, their physical needs are being tended to, but they're also given rest, they're also given space to heal from whatever it is that they are carrying into the wilderness. And as they continue their journey even more, God appears on Mount Sinai and gives them Torah, the way. And so holding that motif, if we look at Elijah's experience, he has this climax of a moment in his ministry. Uh, His life is at risk. He flees to the wilderness. He arrives at a bush. And all of this exhaustion and trauma and fear and anxiety that he's holding He makes this request to die. And when he wakes up, it's food and water and rest that he finds in the wilderness. And then he takes his 40-day journey and arrives at Mount Horeb and experiences God in this really distinct way. And so all of that being said, there is something about what it means to be fed and when food shows up in the wilderness... And in my mind, this is a commentary on what it means to be sustained when you are in this place. And so, this morning, this question that I I would like uh, to engage together is, what does it mean to be fed in the wilderness? And in order to do that, uh, I want to make two comments. One, more to kind of uh, define the wilderness if we can. So... Hagar, who we heard about a few weeks ago from Dan, is the first person in the scriptures to make a journey to the wilderness. 
And from her story, we've kind of extrapolated this definition of what the wilderness might be. So Hagar is fleeing from Sarai and Abram and encounters this angel, and the angel says to her, where have you come from and where are you going? And when she replies, she says, I am fleeing from my mistress. But she does not say where she's going. And so how we've begun to understand the wilderness is that you know you are in the wilderness when you know where you've come from, but you do not know where you are going. And I think that 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 is true. And as I've been sitting with the wilderness and studying and and looking at all of these people who, who have journeyed there, I think there's this other piece that keeps coming up for me. And it's this, the people who find themselves running to the wilderness are running because there is a threat to their life. Hagar, Jacob, Moses, Elijah, the Israelites, they are all running to survive. And what is equally fascinating to me is that when they arrive at the wilderness, Their lives are still at stake. Food and water. This is a picture of the wilderness. Like, actually, a friend of mine is in Israel right now, and and he sent these pictures to some of us. This is the place that looks like refuge for people. This is where safety is found. And yet we look at it, and it's dry and desolate. What does it mean for that to be refuge? Wherever you are coming from must be pretty awful. And in every sense of the word, the wilderness is this place where we are in survival mode. And when you are in survival mode, you go from day to day to day, asking the question, do I have enough to make it through whatever it is I have to face? to do it again today. When we are in the wilderness, we are trying to survive. And the second thing I would say, before we answer this question of what it means to be fed here, I would maybe ask this. What does God look like in the wilderness? Because the text seems to be trying to tell us something about who God is. Here's the deal. Oftentimes, our reality and whatever it is we are experiencing, we can interpret as a commentary on who God is. And what I mean by that is when I look at my life and I look at, hmm, maybe my early 20s, life was full and abundant uh, and really fun. I just played with my friends all the time. And there was, there was certainly hard, awful things, but it was like, I don't, I don't know. It was fun. And I imagine that if someone had asked me the question, who is God? My answer might have been, uh, hmm, God is good. God is faithful. But when I look at times in my life when I've been in the wilderness, someone were to ask me that question, I would have maybe said, I don't know. God feels to be withholding. can say that. I'm not entirely sure God is trustworthy. Uh, And yet, here I am. 
All of that to say, our realities oftentimes dictate who we understand God to be. And yet, what the text invites us to, when we engage these stories of people in the wilderness, it shows this picture of a God that does not look like the reality of the wilderness. Instead, God shows up with food. Because you have not been brought to the wilderness because it's over. You are being sustained. God shows up with food. And it does not mean that it's over. Now there is certainly death that happens in the wilderness. And maybe this morning we can be reminded of the life cycle. That death is the precursor to life. Life comes from death. Resurrection comes. This is the God of the wilderness. Elijah, in his request to die, is met with food. And so what does it mean to be fed in the wilderness? I just think it's so interesting that the trauma and the anxiety and the fear and the reality of, of, of being at a point when that feels like a viable option. Elijah is just met with actual food. Because when I ask this question of, of what it means to be fed in the wilderness, and it's very figurative, uh, I get this picture, and hopefully you're not like me so I don't sound like an idiot, uh, I get this picture of me like sitting alone in my room and this word of God coming, and I hear it, and then all of a sudden, I'm not in the wilderness anymore, and that's what it means to be fed. Uh, which, fair enough, that, that certainly happens, and yet, I wonder if more often than not, God just shows up through people. In this particular passage, it says that, it, that an angel shows up with food, um, and that Hebrew word is actually, it's the same word that can either be translated angel or messenger. And so even in verse 2, when it says that Jezebel sends this messenger uh, to threaten Elijah, it's the same word. And so a messenger in the wilderness shows up with food. And I think about that in my own life and, and the people who have shown up with food. And the people who have called and the people who have just checked in and maybe let me laugh for a couple minutes. What if God shows up like that? And what if that's a little bit of what it means to be fed in the wilderness, that we aren't there alone, that messengers come. And the second thing I would say about being fed in the wilderness is that how we know God shifts. And what I mean by that, when the wilderness does the work that it is supposed to do, which is this process of, of being refined and being stripped away, of being broken, can we see God in it? Elijah takes this 40-day journey and arrives at Mount Horeb. Uh, and Hebrew is the 
beautiful and amazing language. Uh, it's verbal, which means that even nouns have these, uh, stem from these verbal roots, which adds all sorts of layers of meaning. And Horeb shares the, the root of a word uh, that means destruction. And so a possible reading of the word, uh, or I guess when, when people encounter Mount Horeb in the text, is it signals to the reader that something in them is about to die. Something in them is about to shift. And I would say for Elijah, the shift happens. God reveals God's self in a way that Elijah has never seen before. Because if we remember a chapter before, God manifests mirroring the way that Baal manifests in fire and rain. This is, is how, God, how Elijah sees God. And yet this time, God does not show up in the earthquake or the wind or the fire, but instead, a gentle whisper. What is dying in Elijah is how he knows God. That this powerful, transcendent, maybe even seemingly violent God is now manifesting in gentleness and in softness, maybe with room to carry the fear that he's carrying. And I imagine this shift in Elijah being a little bit uh, like anticipating getting hit, but instead being embraced. What if this is the God of the wilderness? What if God is the refuge? and does not mirror the reality of the wilderness. So, maybe some real talk on that point. Sometimes when you're in the wilderness and like really in it, you can't see that that's who God is until you're out. Because sometimes when you're there and you're asking questions like why and are you trustworthy, it can really be hard to see that God is still for us and that God is still good and that God is still tending to our hearts. And so I, I just want to name that and give you permission to maybe wrestle with some of that. And maybe a shift here to real life, and what it looks like to actually be in the wilderness, and what it looks like to actually be fed in the wilderness, I want to tell you a story about a family that I know about. There is a woman who was abducted by her government from her country of origin with the intent to make her an informant on a particular people group in her country. And you can imagine the harsh reality of what that would entail. But this woman is resourceful, and she is strong, and she escaped and went into hiding and ended up getting a job on a cruise line. And so when the boat arrived in the United States and docked there, she had a 24-hour pass. She jumped ship, 
And during that 24 hours, she applied for asylum here in the United States. Through connections and word of mouth, she has made a journey halfway across the nation and arrived in the Twin Cities. She's been here for about three years. And during this time, she has had to figure out housing, shelter, how to make money, where to find resources without any legal status, without any government assistance, without any protection. Her husband joined her a year later, and they now have a child. She's pregnant, with one due in September. Uh, by the grace of God, she has her work permit and a social security number, but she's due in September, and her husband is not allowed to work. So what do you do with that? Friends, this family knows what it means to be in the wilderness. To know where you have come from, but to not know where you are going. They know what it feels like for your life to be at stake and to need to flee. And this family is one of many who is fleeing unspeakable things, not wanting to leave home, but not having other option if you want to survive. This story is about a family who is seeking asylum right now in the United States. An asylum seeker is a person who is experiencing war, terror, persecution, and they are fleeing and crossing borders for safety. And in the United States, when you apply for asylum, you do not have any legal status or government assistance until your claim is approved, which on average takes 18 to 24 months, almost two years and sometimes longer. And it might not even be approved because you have to provide documentation. And I'm sorry, uh, not that that's unreasonable by any means, but when your life is actually at stake, my first thought is not, I better grab my certified birth certificate, hoping that someone will believe your story and that there's a threat of persecution. Friends, there are over 900 open asylum cases in the Twin Cities, 172,000 in the United States, living in this limbo. And those are the ones reported. This is a real-life example of what it means to be in the wilderness. And in this conversation about what it means to be fed here, I can't help but think about this family. Many of you know I came on staff here uh, in August and it's been terrible ever since. Just kidding. <laughs> Just making sure you're listening. <laughs> uh, one of the things I oversee is mission and outreach, along with Elaine Timchak, who we heard from a few weeks ago. Uh, and one of the goals was really to identify two to three things that Awaken really uh, comes around uh, and uh, becomes a part of our identity in this area. And one of the things that I had been discerning was what would it look like uh, to work with refugees? And so I had the privilege of meeting with Tom and Donna Elbinson. Those are names that have been thrown around 
For the last few weeks, Tom is the president of the International Association for Refugees. Say that 10 times fast. Uh, and I, I got to meet with them and have a conversation about what your work looks like and, and, and how, that, how that works. Uh, so September 27th, on a Tuesday night, we were meeting in uh, Richfield at Pizza Luce, and we started to have this conversation. And as Tom was talking and, and sharing his work with me, I don't know if you've ever had those conversations where you feel like you're about to bust out of your skin because someone was reading your diary, apparently, because they're saying everything that you've been thinking about. And this was one of those conversations where it was like all of the things I was discerning was coming together. And Tom started to talk about uh, this church in Maple Grove that started a refugee ministry. And it was just so cool to hear about. And all of a sudden, this man walks over who recognized Tom. And he said, Tom, hey, good to see you. And sure enough, it's the guy that Tom is talking about. <laughs> We're in Richfield. <laughs> And he lives in Maple Grove. And it was just like, <laughs> what is happening? And friends, I am, I am not exaggerating. Since that day, almost every single week, someone, totally unprovoked, whether we're just having casual conversation or, or someone is asking me a question about how to get involved with refugees, people are coming forward and saying, I teach English to refugees. And this is the work I do, and this is the work I do. There is a stirring in this community that is undeniable. And so when you hear things like book studies and, and training, know that it is connected to this heartbeat that is pulsing here. There has been a group of, of people that have been helping me discern like where to go and, and what this looks like. Um, and I wanted to share a little bit of the dream with you. Uh, so Tom's organization is starting uh, this thing called Jonathan House. And Jonathan House, the dream, is that this would be a two-bedroom apartment used for asylum seekers. And that when these friends stay here, stay in this house, they have space to heal, that they have opportunity to recognize the gifts that they bring to the world and then use them. There is a dream that how this happens is that churches will come around and provide financially and practically and relationally to these families. This is the dream of Jonathan House. And I am convinced that this is what we walk towards. And there's a lot that needs to happen. They need a space. They need money. And yet, it is not just this church, but there are other churches, and there are other people who are catching wind about this thing, and, and there's movement. What does it look like to be those messengers in the wilderness? And I'm just convinced that Jonathan House is a part of that. And so, I wanted to update you. <laughs> Take advantage of having the microphone a little uh, and invite you. Then in the coming months, there will be opportunities and, um, man, 
I'd love for you to be there. And so as we transition to this next part of our gathering, I'd like to invite John, Mark, and the band forward. We're going to enter into a time of silence. And during this time, I, I, I would maybe, I know that there are people in this room who are deep in the wilderness. But know that there are other people in this room who are with you there. And there are other people outside of these four walls that are with us. So we're about to receive a song that we've been singing every week. And, and maybe, whether you're holding your wilderness or someone else's, maybe just receive that for them. And however that looks, whether that's singing, standing, sitting, kneeling, uh, we'd like to invite you to respond in whatever way you'd like. During this time, our prayer team is available on this side of the room. Uh, there are candles in the back that you can light as you lift prayers for people. Um, so let's respond together. Pray with me. Thank you, God, that you are a God who lives in the wilderness too. And that we are not alone there. And that you tend to us. And that you see us. And in these next moments, God, I ask that you would give us what we need. In your name we pray. Amen. Friends, stand for benediction. Hear the word of God that came to the Israelites in the midst of exile. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, hear me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear, come to me, hear me that you may live. Grace and peace, friends. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.